last Sunday, we began a new series, and we're examining the works of Christ. Uh, Last Sunday, we started with incarnation, which has to do with Christ coming to earth and being born of a virgin so that he could later, later grow up and earn our righteousness and all that. And die on a cross for our sins, be resurrected, and, and, and all of that. Uh, so that's what we looked at. The sermon is posted on our website if you'd like to take a listen to it. I, I think it'll help you out in some ways, maybe to understand the connection between the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. We talked about those things, but mostly, most importantly, that God had to come to become a man to redeem us. And so we talked about incarnation last week. Uh, this morning, we are going to look at Christ as a boy or, if you will, the childhood of Christ. I think it's befitting that we pray one more time uh, and then get to work. Father, uh, we want to just humbly come before you now, and uh, we thank you for your presence uh, here, and we acknowledge your presence in the Holy Spirit. And we do pray that you would help us to be focused and to be good students of the Word, to learn, but not just to learn with our heads Uh, but this truth would be transformative through the power of the Holy Spirit, making our lives, our hearts more like the heart of Christ. And so uh, teach us through the word this morning and make us more like Christ. Uh, And and may we not get distracted. May we uh, forget about the cares of the world and these things. They're not that these things aren't important, the things of life, but uh, they can be so overwhelming and distracting uh, at times. And so we pray that those things would be put aside and that we would uh, be focused on the scripture right now. And we thank you and pray in advance for what you'll do. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, The New Testament actually tells us very little about the years between Jesus's birth and the beginning of his ministry, his baptism, essentially. There's not a whole lot in the New Testament about that period. In fact, some refer to that period as the lost years. And I don't like that phrase because it seems to imply, or it doesn't seem to imply, it implies that there are some very important things about Jesus' childhood that have been lost and gone. And we don't have access to them, and so we're kind of being robbed of something. So I'm not a big fan of the idea of lost years, but that is really what that period between his you know, his baby dedication, if you will, and, you know, his birth, baby dedication, and his baptism. That's kind of what they're referred to, the lost years. And it's primarily due to the fact that the New Testament doesn't say a whole lot about his childhood. This near silence leaves us uh, to wonder what his life was like as he was growing up in Nazareth, presumably working in the carpenter shop of his earthly father, um, Joseph, and we know that he did work for his father, but we don't know what age he began to do that. And, you know, in Judaism at this point, you know, manhood really kind of began at 12 or 13. And so, but we don't know. We don't, we have to presume that he was doing that throughout his childhood and all that, not just when he was a young man later. Um, we are given two accounts of events that happened between his baby dedication at the temple and his baptism. Uh, the first is his flight into Egypt soon after his birth, uh, where, you know, his family remained, un- they remained in Egypt until the death of Herod the Great. So there's that narrative that we read about. Uh, you remember the killing of the, you know, two-year-old boys in Bethlehem and all of that. We have kind of that and them fleeing to Egypt. We have that story, and that's kind of all we have there. And then we have this 
Another one that has to do with his second, the second would be his visit to Jerusalem at the age of 12, where he astonished the scholars or teachers of the law and what have you in the temple with his knowledge, with his understanding, with his answers and things like that. The lost years, if you will, of Jesus' life or those missing period there is the subject of fanciful, apocryphal gospels that were written in the second and third centuries by Gnostic heretics. And you're thinking, what on earth does that mean? Well, the Gnostics were a pseudo-Christian group, uh, meaning that they were Christian-like or falsely Christian. They claimed to be Christian, but they really weren't. They were posing as Christians. But the Gnostics were the pseudo-Christian group who actually claimed to receive secret knowledge from God. And, and this secret knowledge would be on top of the Scripture itself. Like, we're not talking about they had the Scripture revealed to them. It's quite apparent that they didn't, but they had more knowledge on top of scripture revealed to them. It was a secret kind of knowledge, and the only way to obtain it was to become a Gnostic and to join their sect, their group. So the Gnostics wrote some things that we call the apocryphal gospels, the apocryphal writings, and they were false writings. Um, Apocryphal means, literally means, as it's translated, it means doubtful or unsanctioned. Uh, it means, uh, I would say, in a, in a way, unauthorized. So apocryphal is, is something that, you know, these writings are not authorized by the church. They're not accepted as canon, which your 66 books of the Bible are called canon. Uh, so they're not recognized as equivalent to canon or the 66 books. In an attempt to show that the apocryphal gospels had equal authority to the other books of the Bible, right, and, and you, you must know that uh, even in the first century, um, as these books were being written, they were added to, I'm talking about the New Testament writings, they were really added to the canon. They weren't formally canonized till later, and that was in defense of the scripture. But the books of the Bible that we have, as they were being written, they were being circulated in the church and used. So what I'm telling you is that these books were not written in the 200s or 300s, and then used at that point. The church, the early church, was using the same scripture that we have. It was just later in the 300s that they were canonized in a defense of those writings alone. And so, but these Gnostics were clever. They wrote things and they attached the names of apostles to them to make it look like they were authorized and real things. Like you have the Gospel of Thomas. And maybe you've heard of that. Thomas supposedly, allegedly being the Apostle Thomas, doubting Thomas. Um, you have... Oh, what else do you have? You have the Gospel of Peter, which is named after the Apostle Peter, right? Petros, the rock, Simon Peter, if you will. So these, the Gnostics tied the names of apostles to the writings to make them look legit. Now, the early church repudiated or rejected these books because they were not of true apostolic origin and therefore did not have the canonical authority or the authority of canon. And so the early church recognized these Gnostic writings, 200s, 300s. They recognized them as being false writings, as being fairy tale, as not being legitimate because they were not written by the true apostles who were all dead and and buried and awaiting resurrection by this point. Now, in recent years, though, there has been a growing interest 
in these apocryphal writings since the appearance of Dan Brown's best-selling novel, The Da Vinci Code, uh, which literally includes much speculation drawn from these apocryphal works. And I think it's so funny that, you know, I was writing this sermon last week, putting it together, and I was flipping through channels last night, and there was Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code on. Did I turn it on and watch it? No. But it's funny, it's still on TV, people are still watching it, people still think because they've watched that that Jesus had a bride and probably some children, you know. All of those things are derived from the apocryphal writings. It's pretty, pretty crazy, it's lunacy. Now listen to these stories. These are little, little blurps taken from a Gnostic book called The First Gospel of the Infancy of Jesus Christ. And it's a Gnostic writing that came out probably around 250 to 300, uh, the second, middle of the third century or so. And, and here, here's some of the things that come right out of this book. And the, these, are, these are stories about Jesus. Apparently, these Gnostics had some inside wisdom and knowledge about the childhood of Jesus, things that Scripture did not make clear. The Gnostics had down. There's no lost years with the Gnostics. They know exactly what Jesus was doing as a youth, right? That's what they claim. While in the cradle, Jesus often spoke and proclaimed that he is the Son of God. So the claim from the Gnostics is, is that when Jesus was before the age where children speak, he was a little toddler and all that, rug rat in the cradle, a little tiny guy. Apparently, he, he would supernaturally open his mouth and speak clearly, and then, I'm the Son of God. You know, he would proclaim that. I don't know how that was kind of ridiculous, but I don't know how he did it. But he was professing that he was the Son of God, which is a really interesting thing here. Now, it's a Gnostic writing. Uh, after arriving in Egypt, we know that they did go to Egypt to flee uh, Herod. Uh, some of Jesus' swaddling clothes, the baby clothes, fell off on a, fell off of him, apparently, or they didn't fall off of him. They were on him at one time, on Jesus, and they were removed. But then they somehow fell on a possessed boy. And at that moment, the demons flew out of his mouth and he was cured. So the clothing of Jesus was actually casting out demons when Jesus was a baby. Uh, there was a man who was turned into a mule by a sorcerer. The man's uh, sisters went and told Mary, and Mary took baby Jesus. And uh, that is not a reference to Talladega Nights, right? Whenever, I love baby Jesus. You ever seen the movie? You remember what I'm talking about? Baby Jesus, the Christmas part? I have no idea why I brought that up. Anyways, she took baby Jesus, because it reminds me of Talladega Nights. She took baby Jesus, Mary did, allegedly, and put him on the back of this mule, and instantly the mule turned back into the man. So, yeah. A, a leprous woman uh, was healed by washing in Christ's bathwater. That's kind of strange. Uh, a leprous princess was healed by the same method. So apparently the, the bath water was anointed with healing power. Uh, at seven years old, uh, and again, this is Gnostic writing, so don't think, wow, these things really happen. Because they're putting out movies that show these things. Maybe not some of these, but this, this, this next one, I think there was a movie that just came out about Jesus as a baby, and they were showing him, like, heal a bird. All that stuff comes from Gnostic writings. But anyways, listen. At seven years old, Jesus was making clay animals with several other boys his age, and, and they became completely frightened when Jesus made them come to life. So apparently he was fashioning clay animals out of, you know, animals out of clay, and, you know, oh, 
ah, you know, they came to life. I don't know if it was like the old claymation cartoons that we used to watch. Remember those kind of creepy looking things? But apparently he, he turned these clay, these clay balls into these animals and then he made them come to life and the boys ran off and told their parents who warned that Jesus is obviously a sorcerer. Okay? Another example, Jesus made clay sparrows near a fish pool on the Sabbath. Highly illegal. You can't work on the Sabbath. Uh, When they began to fly, another boy who was watching chastised Jesus for breaking the Sabbath, and then that boy proceeded to destroy the fish pool. Jesus allegedly prophesied that that boy would vanish like the fish pool, and then that child dropped instantly and died. You see, it, it goes from making animals, it goes from, you know, the bathwater and all that, to now Jesus is like killing people. It just gets so twisted. Uh, Joseph, another example, Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, you remember Mary and Joseph, allegedly he spent two years building a throne for the king of Jerusalem. Okay, so supposedly he built this large, ornate throne for the king of Jerusalem, but it turned out to be too small. So Jesus comes in as a young boy, and he increases the size supernaturally. Uh, Another one, the half-brother of Jesus, James, uh, was apparently bitten by a viper. Jesus hollered at the snake and commanded that the snake suck out its own poison. You know, it puts it in, and then it sucks it back out, and then James recovered. It sounds like an episode out of Star Trek. Jesus was accused of throwing a boy off a roof. That sure fits with the character of Christ, doesn't it? Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, Supposedly, he was accused for uh, throwing a boy off a roof, uh, and the boy hit the ground and died. Uh, But Jesus raised him back to life, and the boy acquitted Jesus. So... It's like Jesus threw him off and killed him, but I didn't mean to kill him, so I'll give him life back. Now I don't get in trouble for it. Uh, Jesus, another, the last one. These are horrible. Jesus is sent to school to learn the alphabet, but teaches the schoolmaster instead. Okay? It's not me that needs to learn the, the alphabet, pal. It's you. When a second teacher asked Jesus the alphabet, Jesus responded with a question. And then the teacher raised his hand to whip Jesus for insubordination, but before he could strike Jesus, he fell dead. I think we found the inspiration for Dennis the Menace. Amen? These, these, here's the thing. These are Gnostic writings. They came way after Scripture. They're an absolute joke, and yet there are so many people that believe them to be true. And maybe not some of the harsher ones, but the idea of turning clay animals into clay into animals and causing them to live or healing an injured bird or a dead bird in these things. These are all speculations. So according to the Gnostics, Jesus was a show-off, Jesus was a bully, and Jesus was a murderer as a boy. And then on the other side, you have the canonical gospels, the true gospels, the gospels that we read. And, and, and we read that during Jesus' childhood, you know, the alleged lost years, that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And that's in Luke 2, 
52, just up a few verses from where we're looking at today. I don't know about you, but that little blurb and the passage that we're going to look at today is enough to prove to me that Jesus was rock solid, an amazing man of God, even as a young man. He doesn't sound anything like what the Gnostics have projected or portrayed. And, and you can see why the apocryphal gospels and the other Gnostic writings were rejected, right? I mean, this stuff is craziness. None of it fits in with the character of Christ. It only fits when you don't understand what the gospels say, when you're ignorant of what the gospels actually teach about the Lord Jesus. You can see why they were rejected. They are not only inconsistent in, inconsistent in representing the character of Christ, but quite frankly, they're blasphemous. Because anytime you take something that the Lord has not done and say that he has done it, it's blasphemy. And that's exactly what they've done here. Now, I want to go back through the passage we read earlier, Luke 2, 41 to 50. It provides us with an amazing glimpse into the early years of Christ, showing that as a 12-year-old boy, he was already beginning to, uh, he obviously knew who he was, but he was also beginning to embrace his mission on earth. So I'd like to break down this passage line by line. Look at verses 41 to 42 with me, if you will. Let me get a little sip of coffee. And what you're going to end up seeing here is quite the opposite of what the Gnostics say. And then it all kind of plays into this whole series as we look at the works of Christ in that even as a boy, Christ was working which is just mind-blowing to me. Let's look at 41 and 42. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, uh, they went up according to custom. Luke tells us that Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem each year for the Passover feast. Obviously, they were committed Jews, uh, not just in in their ethnic background as Jewish people, but they were faithful in the faith. And they went up and made this trek to Jerusalem every year for the Passover. Now, people came from great distances for the Passover. And Jesus' family had come from Nazareth, which was 70 miles away. Um, so imagine making this journey once a year. Actually, they came for a couple of different feasts, but imagine making a 70-mile on-foot journey to a feast. You know, I hate to be sarcastic, but you get a little rain and you get a little combination and people aren't going to drive two miles to church. You did, you know. It's just amazing. I, I was reminded, I saw this image the other day and it had, um, it was from like a pulpit view and it was in China at one of the kind of the underground churches and, and you had the pews which were all wood and you had Every seat on the pew was filled, and these Chinese Christians had their arms up, and they were praising the Lord. And then when you look down at the bottom of the picture, there was water above their knees because they lived probably near the Ganges, and it was flooded, and they still came to church. You know, that's the kind of commitment that, that Jesus' family had. We're going to travel 70 miles to go worship our Lord. 70 miles away. Now, they may have taken Jesus when he was younger, but it was customary a year or two before a boy turned 13 for his family to bring him to the temple so that he might become accustomed to the procedures that would be followed at his bar mitzvah. 
okay? So what do we have here? We have Jesus' family coming up to Jerusalem every year. And in this example, they're coming to Jerusalem to go to the feast of the Passover. They get there. Jesus is 12. That's a customary thing they're doing. Now look at verses 43 and 44a. It says, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, okay, so they, you know, it ended and they turned around and they were going back to Nazareth. Uh, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, uh, 44, but supposing him to be in the group, they way ab- went about a day's journey. So after the feast, Mary and Joseph left Jerusalem without knowing exactly where Jesus was. Now, I would insert a parenthetical word of caution here because the first thing that came to mind to me was what lousy parents how do you not know where your kid is you know how do you not know right but we don't want to think of them as bad parents in this scenario here you know they had lost track of their son that's true but we don't want to go too far and wow they're terrible parents you got to understand when families went to jerusalem for the feast They typically traveled in massive groups of extended family, neighbors, acquaintances, right? So it was, was, as Dan read from his translation, a caravan, I think, is what he said. This is a very, very large group, all the more easy to get, you know, lose a child in the group. You assume he's in there. So his, his parents assumed that he was somewhere amongst the other children or somebody in this group, that he was in this collection, which was a very, very large collection. And and it made sense that they would travel together. It was far safer to travel in a large group. There were robbers and thieves and all sorts of, you know, bad guys out there along these little dirt highways. And so it made sense to travel and, you know, there's protection in numbers. But it does, the whole idea here reminds me of those scenes in the Home Alone movies, right? You've seen the movies? I love those movies, right? Yeah. Uh, snakes. I don't know who's snakes. I don't know snakes. Remember that? I love those movies. They're so good. And it kind of reminds me of, of, you know, where little Kevin's, you know, little Kevin, he's such a cute little Macaulay Culkin guy, not so much as a teen, but uh, as a little guy. But, you know, this cute little guy, you know, his parents assume that he's in the group. You know, they even do a head count. And there's the ding dong neighbor who's asking all the questions about, does this man get good mileage? You remember that? You know, it's like, man, you just want to take that guy and poof, you know. You know, they, they, they just sort of assume. They don't look intently at everyone and count all, you know, really take a, a, a real inventory. They sort of assume that he's in the larger group, you know. And uh, it reminds me of that here. I don't know why. Maybe it's because it's, the movie's so great. But, but you have to admit this stuff happens, does it not? Has it ever happened to you? Has it ever happened to you? Yeah? Amen, right? <laughs> right? Uh, years ago, you know, I, I was asking Rachel, so I had my facts straight because, you know, whenever I experience something five years later, it's a completely different story. I add aliens and lasers, you know, and all this stuff, and so I'm not real good at holding to the facts. Uh, but I remember years and years ago, we, we went to Disneyland with our family, and, uh, and at that time, we had just Ryan and Colin, right? We didn't have Ian yet. Were you pregnant with Ian at the time? So she's, you know, pregnant. And Ian was, uh, you know, he was coming. So anyways, we went down there, and, uh, you know, we kept calling and Ryan right next to us all the time, I mean, especially Rachel. You know, I mean, she's just like, she's like a hawk. She's like an eagle. She puts her wings around him. You know, I'm just like, duh, look at Mickey Mouse, you know. I'm not even paying attention. 
And, uh, and so we're walking around, and the kids are with us. We're constantly checking to make sure you're trying to hold their hands. But they're at Disneyland, and everything in that place catches a kid's eye. You know, stuff that I don't notice, they notice. And so we, we went into this store, and we got in there, and we were looking around, you know. And it's like, oh, look, a, a, a plastic Goofy for $49.95. Let's get one, you know. Duh. And so we're shopping. Rachel and I are shopping, and Colin's right there. And Ryan is not right there. And so, you know, all of a sudden, you know, that panic and that anxiety. First, you kind of look down the end of the aisle, both aisles. He's not there. So you start freaking out, you know. He's not, he's nowhere, man. We searched the entire store. He was nowhere to be found. And so Rachel's exploding emotionally. I'm like, somebody took my kid. I was going to go Rambo, you know, like I could even find him there. And so we go out of the store, and we're like, okay, let's retrace our steps, and, right? Because that's what you should do. If you lose something, you, can, you try to retrace your steps. So we went out of the store. We searched the storefront. He's nowhere. And we're walking around. We kind of walk out past the store a little ways, and then Rachel spots him, right? She's got, like, heat vision. She spots him, and he's just standing. He's like two. He's standing by that big whale's mouth. You know that thing you go in the cave? And he's going... He's just frightened. He's just sitting there like paralyzed with fear, you know, and she, she sees him and tears, and he's like 50 yards away or 50 feet, and she tears off and, and grabs him, you know, and swoops him up in her arms, and, uh, and it was awesome, and I was relieved. Uh, we were both relieved, and so in some ways, we could, I could relate at least to this story, you know, of course, this example was far worse, but, well, you know, after Ian was born, uh, and I, I think he was what? When did we take him? When he was, he was two as well. We didn't learn our lesson, apparently. Um, but we actually did. We took Ian, and it was, it was horrible. It was pathetic and borderline child abuse. But we bought a leash. So we walked our kid, you know. He was like a bloodhound, <laughs> you know. We walked him around Disneyland because we had learned our lesson. There was no way. It was this funky little bear backpack that he hadn't had a leash coming off of it. And, if, and you know how it is when you walk a dog that's not trained. It's always at the end of the leash pulling your arm out of the socket. That was Ian. You know, he, poof, 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 you know, it was just like, psh, psh, psh. but we didn't lose him. We learned our lesson. Yeah, right? Yeah? But... In a way, I could relate to what they were going through because there is that crazy, and you know what, it, it's that crazy, paralyzing fear that comes over you that my child is gone. And that is exactly what they were experiencing here. Now, 44b and 45, it says, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. So it's like they retraced their steps. Okay, he is not in this caravan. We better turn around and go back the way we came. And we stopped over there for a falafel. You know, you got to... They didn't have burgers, I don't think, right? You know, we got to figure this out. And so they go back, they head back. And what happened was it kind of reached fever pitch. They realized that, man, he, he's been gone too long. He's not even trailing behind somewhere. You know, and so they, they looked through him. They scoured the group and searched and searched like we combed the area at Disneyland in front of that store. They searched everywhere. They could not find him. They realized he is not with us, and he's nowhere to be found. He's not close by. He's not at the whale's mouth. And so they retraced their steps. And as I said, we can only imagine 
the anxiety and feeling that they had. Because I tell you what, we were paralyzed with fear only for maybe five to seven minutes. And they traveled an entire day's journey, probably 20 miles, uh, and then realized, I mean, just, I can't even imagine what they must have felt like. It must have been unbelievable, the anxiety that they experienced as they, you know, looked and looked and looked and searched for their unusual son because he was unusual. He wasn't like all the other kids. Look at 46 and 47. Oh, man, this, is, this just, just heightens it. After three days. <laughs> I'm done. I would be so done. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Wow. It took three days of searching, but they finally found Jesus in the temple in the midst of the teachers. Now, there are four things from this couple of verses here that I want you to notice about Jesus here. Number one, Jesus was sitting among the teachers. He was sitting among the teachers. Now, this is absolutely incredible. This is unreal. It's unbelievable. Because the only men who were permitted to sit among the religious teachers were other religious teachers and respected ones, peers, respected peers, and, and those whom the religious leaders respected, like noble men, like royalty. Okay, so, so quite unlike our day where I could sit in this front row and I'm a religious teacher, if you will, and anyone can sit next to me, anyone can come to me and slug me in the schnoz. You can sit with me and we can converse and talk. Back in these days, you couldn't get access to these guys. And it's like that in some churches today. And so... It's incredible to me that at 12 years old, here he is. He's not standing because that's how you would have been. That's your proper posture, if you will. He's sitting in their midst. He's sitting with them. And the fact that Jesus was sitting with them shows, it shows that, that he had earned their respect. They saw something in Jesus they, that they had not seen in any other 12-year-old boy. Okay? And you just think about that right now. If you've had a 12-year-old, and some of you are going to have a 12-year-old at some point, I have one and two who were 12-year-olds, um, love them to death. 12-year-old boys tend to not be all that impressive when it comes to Scripture or the things of God. Um, they are capable now of BO uh, and laziness and sleeping till noon. Uh, and, and here you have this example of a 12-year-old boy who is sitting among the R.C. Sproul, the John MacArthur, the John Piper, the great preachers of Scripture today. He's sitting in their midst. This is just mind-blowing to me. They saw something in him, and, and, and their whole angle was, hey, 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 young man, come over here and sit with us. Come over here and join in our theological discussion Join with us as we discuss the things of God. He was sitting with them, and that, that's just incredible. Number two, Jesus was listening to them. As they talked back and forth, Jesus paid close attention to what they were saying. This shows that Jesus respected them. Now, you just think about a 12-year-old boy. 
how respectful are they? Not very. Not very. Jesus actually paid them respect by listening to them. And I'll tell you what, that is one of the great ways to respect someone that you're in front of. Even if you're 46 years old like I am. I'm not 45, by the way. I finally did the math. My wife thought I was. I'm 46. I've been lying to you guys. Okay? As a 46-year-old, you know, I'm learning to listen to people intently because it conveys respect and value. And so he's listening to them, and at the same time, he's respecting them. It also shows that Jesus was a tremendous student and learner. A tremendous student and learner, right? Because he wanted to listen to them. Now, at this point, some would say, Jesus, he's God. He, he did not have any reason to learn or to, to really listen to anyone. He, 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 he's God. He knows all things. He's omniscient right? Well, this is partly true. Jesus is God, and God most certainly knows all things. But as I stated last week, uh, Jesus the man did not possess omniscience, all knowledge. As a man, he had to learn just as we did. In fact, his divinity rarely, if ever, uh, interfered with his humanity because that would be a violation of his true humanity. And so Jesus as a man, Jesus incarnate, God incarnate, did not have all knowledge, and so he had to learn. Uh, He did not possess omnipresence. He couldn't be everywhere at once or in another place at the same time. He he didn't have omnipotence, all power as a man. We talked about this stuff last week. As a man, Jesus was limited, just as we are limited. He wasn't limited because of sin like us, but he was still limited in his incarnation. He had been made as it says in Scripture, a little lower than the angels. So, Jesus had to learn, and here we see an example of him listening and learning, and quite frankly, he spent his entire life listening and learning. At least during his ministry, he did more speaking than listening. Not necessarily true, though, in that he listened to the Father all the time. He didn't have to listen to earthly teachers and to learn from them any longer, but for the most part, that's how he spent his life. He was listening to them. He was sitting and he was in their midst listening to them. Number three, Jesus asked them questions. This is interesting as well. This shows that Jesus was seeking specific answers about things. Maybe they were talking about the functions of the temple or the return of the Lord, you know, the return of, or not even the return of the Lord. They wouldn't have been talking about that, but they would have been talking about their Messiah or something of that nature or how sacrifices work. Who knows? But Jesus wasn't just listening, he was actually asking questions because I believe he wanted maybe a deeper knowledge of something or how he wanted knowledge of how something functioned and worked. And most certainly knew or know that Jesus wanted to know the scriptures. Uh, Jesus was into doctrine. Jesus was into theology. Uh, He wanted to know how the temple functioned. And so he literally asked the experts in these things question after question. And I will say this, Great students do both. They listen to their teachers, and they ask them questions. And that is what we see Jesus doing here. Number four, Jesus gave answers that amazed them. Jesus gave answers that amazed them. Now, this shows us something very, very special and unique about the mind of Jesus, about the mind of Christ. The biblical teaching on the fall of the human race reveals that the effects of sin permeate the whole person. 
The fall not only weakened the body severely so that it is exposed to physical maladies, to disease, and to death, it also had a significant impact on the human mind. So it's not just our bodies that have been impacted and and somewhat ravaged by sin. It's also our minds. Our minds are clouded with sin. Our minds have been impacted too. Our minds are as fallen as the rest of our body. Sin clouds the mind. Sin impairs our ability to think clearly. We call these results of the fall the noetic effects of sin. That would be the theological term for it. Now, we still have a capacity for reason, right? We do. Even though our minds are fallen, we're impacted by the noetic effects of sin, we still have a capacity uh, for reason, right? We can still, even in our sinfulness, add two and two and come to the conclusion that they equal four. So we have the ability to employ logic to a degree. We can rationalize things. We can reason. Uh, We can still work logical arguments um, and other philosophical problems. Yet, yet, even the greatest minds, right, we are all given to making mistakes in our thinking. And some of those mistakes cost us very dearly. And the culprit there is the noetic effects of sin. Our minds have been impacted. In our text, we see that young Jesus was not clouded in his mind or thinking at all. At all. Not only was he a great listener, but when he gave answers, when he gave answers to maybe their questions or he gave input as they were talking, there was a level of precision and wisdom in his answers that pretty much had been unseen in the entire world up to this point. Because prior to Jesus coming, there was no person who has not been impacted by the noetic effects of sin. Jesus is the only one. Now, this is why is this that Jesus gave answers that were so precise that they actually startled and amazed these guys? It's because Jesus did not participate in original sin which means that he was not impacted by the noetic effects of sin. Jesus' mind was perfect like Adam's mind was perfect before the fall of man. And it's really interesting that the scripture refers to Jesus as the second Adam. When Jesus gave answers, they were unclouded. They were unbiased. They were unimpacted by his experiences. They were pure. They were precise. So much so that his answers seemed alien to his listeners. Right? I mean, when when a 12-year-old boy gives answers that are like, that is the deepest, most profound thing I've ever heard said about that particular function at the temple or whatever. I mean, you're you're blown away. And, And they were startled by his answers. It says they were amazed. Amazed in the Greek, it means to be so astonished as to almost fail to comprehend what one has experienced. What do we call that in our terminology? We call it being blown away. They were blown away by Jesus' answers because his answers were unimpacted by sin. They were given from a, an unimpacted uh, mind, if you will, a perfect mind that could think clearly and perfectly rationally with perfect logic, total precision. Pretty amazing. They were blown away. And no wonder, right, that they said, young man, come and sit with us. 
Come and share your thoughts with us. I've been wrestling with Frank about that piece of theology for 24 years, and you summed it up in a sentence. Frank, you're fired. Jesus, you're the new high priest. You know, they were blown away. Now look at verse 48. <laughs> this is where it gets good. Uh, and when his parents saw him, they were astonished. I think that was the Rachel effect at Disneyland. <gasps> oh, you know, whoa, there he is. They were astonished. And his mother said to him, listen to this. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. In great distress. Here is an incident that some try to use to argue against the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. Apparently, his behavior, at least it looks like it in the text, had upset his mother Mary. Um, she saw his lingering in the temple as a thoughtless offense, offense to her, to her husband, and to her whole family. And, and I would say, as a human being who's experienced this, this is understandable why she reacted the way she did, right? Um, when your son disappears for a few minutes at Disneyland, you freak out and get upset. And sometimes when you find your kid, you get mad at him. What were you thinking? He's two, you know. Fortunately, Rachel didn't treat Ryan that way. I did. You should have known better, you know. Pluck the binky. Sorry, you know. It's like, come on, man. I mean, it, it's understandable why she got upset, right, when your son disappears. And then when you find your son after three days of searching and he's sitting, he's relaxed, <laughs> he's conversing with others like nothing is wrong, that heightens it all, doesn't it? Why aren't you running around screaming for your parents? You're teaching them, you know. This is why they were astonished. They were astonished at the fact that he was, first of all, teaching them something. That's mind-blowing. Look at him. He's over there like one of them teaching them something. And secondly, he's not bothered at all by the fact that we're missing. They were blown away. She was blown away by what was going on. And I am blown away by how well she composed herself, to be honest with you. When she saw him among the teachers, she went to him and chastised him. She did. Her words are chastening words. There's a correction. There's a rebuke there. She said, in effect, why did you treat us like this, Jesus? Your father and I have been worried sick. We searched everywhere for you. You see that word distress? It is translated as high anxiety. So it's totally understandable why she responded the way she did. And yet, when Jesus heard this accusing question, he responded with his own question. I love that. If you go back into the, through the Gospels and look at how Jesus responded to people who questioned him, 99% of the time he responded with a question. Jesus answered very little questions. At 12 years old, he's at it again. <laughs> he answered very little questions of people. He usually, answers, he usually responds with a question to the Pharisee, to the scribe, whoever's trying to trap him with his own question so that he can trap them and expose their motive. He's amazing how he responds here. He hears her accusing question. He responds with his own question. Look at 49 and 50. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And then in verse 50, it says, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Jesus 
politely rebuked his mother for not knowing what she should have known. Now, when I say that, you immediately think, well, how could she have known? I mean, that's not her fault. And, and why would Jesus do this? Why would he turn the rebuke on her? He said, in effect, this to her. You, you, he said this, you should have known where I was. You should have known where I would be. You should not have had to seek me. You should have understood. And in a way, it implies that he's saying, you brought this anxiety upon yourself because you should have known, you should have understood where I was, where I would be, what I'm about. You should have known. You did this to yourself. In a, in a way, that's what he's saying. And just think about this. Mary had been meditating on and pondering the words of the angel Gabriel, which were spoken to her at her annunciation when she was about to be overtaken by the spirit and with child. And that was in a spiritual sense, not physical. She'd been pondering the words of the angel Gabriel. She had been pondering the words of Simeon, who was basically a man who was about to die, who God extended his life to the point that he could see baby Jesus and then proclaim over this baby, that's the Messiah. She had been pondering the words of Gideon the angel, and that's amazing, just think about that. You met an angel, wow. Pondering the words of Simeon, and she had been pondering the words of Anna the prophetess, who was another person who prophesied over Jesus as a baby. He is the Messiah. All of these people, Gideon, Simeon, and Anna the prophetess, they all spoke about the person and work of her son, Jesus Christ, Luke 2.19, right? What I'm saying is, is that she knew who Jesus was. She didn't have to try to figure out who Jesus was. She knew. She knew that she had been with no man, and there was a supernatural thing that happened to her, and she was pregnant. She knew that Jesus was God, because it says in Luke he shall be called, this is what the angel Gabriel said to his father, Joseph, he shall be called Emmanuel, which means translated God with us. She knew who Jesus was. She knew that Jesus was God, that she had God. Uh, her son was God. She knew that he was Israel's Messiah. She knew that he had been sent from heaven on a mission and would eventually at some point engage that mission. And what is that mission? Redemption. She had been pondering these things since the Annunciation, since the angel came to her and spoke to her before Jesus was born. She knew who he was. She knew what he was about. In fact, if you go read in Luke chapter 1, verse 46 through 55, so the chapter prior to the one that we're studying... Before Jesus was born, Mary sang a song while visiting with Elizabeth, which shows that she knew these things about him. She knew. And this is why he corrected her. You, she should have known who Jesus was. She should have known that he would be about his father's house. She should have known that he was called to mission. She should have known that he was unlike any other child in the history of the world and that he had been sent from heaven to accomplish redemption, that he would be about those things and that life ultimately, in the ultimate sense, that life with Jesus would not be like life with Colin or Ryan or Ian. 
it would be different than life would be with your children because Jesus was different. She should have known, but in verse 50 it says, neither Joseph nor Mary understood. What do you mean you're supposed to be in your father's house? I don't get that. You've been pondering these things my whole life for 12 years, and you don't get it. And the reason why is because they were focused on the things of this life. The earthly life, mom, dad, son, family, etc., rather than on the kingdom of God. And I would say again, empathetically, it's understandable why they were wrapped up in the things of this life, the affairs of this life, their children. You're my son, Jesus. Yes and no. We all get caught up in the here and now, don't we, from time to time, especially when calamity strikes. We lose our heavenward focus. We lose the sense of, of heaven and what's to come because of what we're dealing with right in the here and now. And that's what happened. Jesus also said, do you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, there are three fairly quick things that I want you to observe from this statement, and then we'll begin to wrap it up. Jesus said, did you not know that I must be about my father's house? Three things from that statement that I want you to pick up on, maybe take a note. Number one, Jesus declared himself to be the son of God. This is amazing. He was in his father's house. Father being who? God the Father. House being the temple. This means, I mean, he is literally declaring at 12 years old, I am, I was in my father's house, my father, my heavenly father, which means I am the son of God, which means I am God. At 12 years old, have you ever heard people say, I wonder if Jesus actually knew who he was or what he was about as a youth. And some of the movies that come out are dumb and stupid because they show Jesus during his ministry as if he doesn't know who he is and he's trying to figure out who he is. Oh, should I go down and get baptized? I don't know. It seems kind of right. How terrible. At 12 years old, he knew he was the son of God. He declared right here. I was in my father's house, my father being God, my father's house being the temple. This is a declaration of his deity. People are always wondering, did Jesus know? Did he know? Yes. He certainly knew at 12 years old. Now, did you know that these are the first recorded words of Christ in the New Testament? These are the first red letters in your Bible. Well, not in your Bible, but in your New Testament. This is the first time the Lord Jesus speaks in the New Testament. It's interesting that the first recorded words of Christ in the New Testament are a declaration of who he is in my father's house. It's incredibly interesting, too, that if you fast forward to the cross, he makes the same declaration, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then if you fast forward all, all the way into Revelation in chapter 3, he is speaking of his father again. The bookends of the teachings of Jesus are, I am God, I am God. How amazing. That's just incredible. He declares himself to be God in this verse at 12. He's in his father's house. Number two, Jesus was about his father's business. The temple was the earthly dwelling place of God at this time. If you came to the temple, you came to engage in the things of God. You came to engage in the things that pertain to God's business 
or to the Father's business. Now, some translations, like the King James, actually say it that way. Jesus' correction is, did you not know that I must be about my Father's business? They don't say house, they say his business. Jesus stayed behind at the temple, his Father's house, for the purpose of engaging in the things of the temple, his Father's business. What was his Father's business at the temple? What sort of things took place there? How about prayer? The Father's business is prayer. How about preaching? Acts, the early chapters of Acts, it shows Peter and others preaching the gospel in Solomon's portico, which was attached to the section of the temple. When you went, when you went to the temple, you were going to church. You went there and there was prayer. You went there and there was preaching. You went there and there was theology. What were the leaders, the teachers discussing with Jesus? The functions of the temple, the Bible, scripture, they were discussing theology. When you went there, there was discipleship. That is the Father's business, discipleship, making other followers of Jesus Christ. Spirit converts them and, and we train them and teach them all that Christ commanded. What else took place there? Sacrifice, which basically means atonement or reconciliation. Animals were sacrificed there as a means of forgiveness and atonement for sinners. And I was pondering this the other day because I'm reading in Leviticus and it just goes into all of the sacrifice and blood, blood, blood. It's so disgusting. And we think, gosh, why did God establish that system of killing innocent animals, shedding their blood, burning them, for the atonement of our sin. The reason why it's a gross, disgusting, bloody system is because our sin is gross and disgusting. Every time an animal was brought, it was there to remind us of how disgusting and deadly our sin is. And it's something that took place at the temple all the time. If you wanted your sins forgiven, if you realized you were a sinner and you wanted them forgiven, you brought an animal and its throat was cut, its blood was splattered on the altar and it was placed on the altar and consumed by fire and that was a mode of atonement. You were forgiven for a period of time or whatever. These are the things. This is the Father's business. Prayer, preaching, theology, discipleship, reconciliation, atonement. That's the Father's business. And Jesus desired to learn about these things because he desired to be about his father's business at 12. I just find it to be absolutely amazing that as a 12-year-old boy, Jesus was already growing in his awareness of his task on earth. He knew that he had a job to perform for his father, and that job had something to do with the temple, his father's house, and the things that were taking place there and being discussed his father's business. Number three, Jesus set for us an example. He was about his father's business. As adopted sons and daughters in Christ, we too must be about our father's business. We must be about the things of the Lord, just as Jesus was. Now here are some practical things that we can do. We can pray. Okay, these are modeled after the temple. We can pray. The temple was about prayer. That's where the Father's business was happening. We can pray. We can preach the gospel. We can tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ. Your family, your neighbors, your coworkers, your employees. 
We can read and study our Bibles, right? We can become good theologians. It is the Father's business that you would grow in Scripture, in your knowledge and in the wisdom of Scripture, that you become more and more like Jesus Christ, that you become a good, solid theologian. We can make disciples, right? The temple was about discipleship. We can make disciples. We can teach others to obey all that Christ commanded. Matthew 28, that's what we're commanded to do. We can sacrifice we don't have to take animals down to some local center and have them killed for the remission of our sin. It's the blood of the lamb that covers our sin. That's done. We're cleansed by the blood of Jesus, but we can still sacrifice our own bodies. Why? Because they are the temple of the living God now. He will not dwell, no longer dwell in places that are made by stone and by human hands. He dwells in his people. And we sacrifice and lay down our wants and desires and the temptations and those things to be holy as we might be a holy representation of God on earth. We can sacrifice and obviously we can reconcile. We've been reconciled to God at this level. We need to reconcile our relationships at this level. We've got to work on our relationships. We, need, we might need to apologize to someone. We might need to forgive someone. Closing. Are you following Christ's example? Are you about your father's business? Or are you caught up in the things of this life, so much so that you are missing the things of God like Joseph and Mary did? Verse 50, they did not understand. They become blinded by what was in front of them and lost the view of heaven and the view of the kingdom. It happens. Beloved, I would say, be about your father's business. If you're a Christian, be about your father's business and make whatever changes you need to make to get on board with his business. And I will tell you this, it is when we become a servant of the Lord in these things that we do experience true purpose, joy, and happiness. If we live only for ourselves, we are starving ourselves of God's blessings and joy. Be about your father's business. Be like the son of God, Jesus at 12. And that's a great example for you young guys. At 12, he was about his father's business. If you call yourself a Christian, if you believe in Jesus Christ and you love Jesus, be about your father's business. Make him first. Make it important to be about his business.